0: Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers Podcast with your host, Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers Podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics, including health, fitness, and training strategies, to name a few. If you enjoy the show and wish to support, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon or wish to make a one-time donation, please visit the show PayPal page at paypal.com. .me forward slash pod. Links to both of those can be found in the show notes. Also, consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform and on our video version of the show hosted on YouTube. For updates and notifications, please visit my social media channels at Zach Bitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter, and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. If you wish to sponsor the show or have any other questions or feedback, please reach out to me at HPOPodcast at gmail.com. Hey folks, just a quick announcement before we get rolling with this episode. I just uploaded 26 unique training plans to my website. They range from 12-week base building plans all the way up to advanced 100-mile training plans. If you're looking for a bit more guidance with your training, please consider checking out my offerings at zachbitter.com, that's Z-A-C-H-B-I-T-T-E-R.com. Once on the site, click the link on the top titled Training Plans and see if anything fits your needs. I'm also looking to continue to add to this catalog, so do not hesitate to reach out with any suggestions. Thanks, everyone. All right, folks, we're back for another episode of HPO, and for this one, I am following up my interview with Pete Kostelnik with uh, another, what I would call legends of exploration is maybe a good way to, to label it. I've got uh, Ray Zahab on the on the podcast. And Ray, where do I even start with you? I mean, <laughs> the big one is obviously you you ran across the Sahara Desert and it's a fairly well-documented project that I, I believe the the documentary was released around 2006 or so. But it's still, you know, very very well received I think within the ultra marathon running community as like an example of how to or what it's like I guess to to go very long distances over a very long time and I want you to introduce yourself and kind of share some of the things that kind of got you into ultra running and things like that and then we can maybe jump into some of the the, the the host of questions I have to ask yeah. you about this sort of stuff. Well,
1: listen. First of all, thank you so much uh, for for inviting me to be on the podcast. I mean, it's obvious uh, anybody who listens to the podcast is a fan of yours. I am a fan of yours. Been following your exploits and running for for some time, and uh, so it's just super stoked to be here. So I'm I'm you know it sounds like a sort of a throwback. Uh, Job title, but I'm a professional explorer. So I do expeditions around the world that involve me being on foot. It could also involve me being on skis. So, for example, I've covered close to twenty thousand kilometers uh, on foot across pretty much all the world's largest deserts, but as well across remote Arctic regions. Been to the South Pole unsupported, uh, across Siberia, uh, Kamchatka. So many of the Arctic expeditions I do are completely self-contained, completely unsupported, and in the middle of winter. It's when I love to be there. And then many of the desert expeditions are done in the middle of summer in the desert. And so, like, at the hottest time of year. Um, I love being in these places in their ex- most extreme environments. I love sharing what I'm seeing and experiencing with the schools who follow along with me on my expeditions. I know that's a long-winded explanation. I'm sure we'll get into some of the other stuff later on, but that's primarily what I do.
0: Yeah, you know, the funny thing is my wife and I have been kind of joking around a little bit just as we kind of start to prepare for my cross-country run this fall. And, and I've been kind of finding guys like yourself that I'm that I admittedly am using someone as coping mechanisms because when I hear you describe like, well, I'm going to run across the desert, but I'm going to do it in the hottest time of year. Or I'm going to go to the poles during the coldest and that sort of stuff. I'm thinking like, well, I'm going to try to like get the best possible weather I can find, (laughs) you know, within reason, obviously it's a long trip going from San Francisco to New York. So you're going to hit some sort of, you know, imperfect weather at some point in time, but I'm certainly not seeking that out. So I think when I just kind of get maybe a little overwhelmed with the logistics and things like that, it's kind of cool that there's been so much precedent set uh, from folks like yourself, like Pete Koselnik, Marshall Orts, we chatted about a little bit before I hit record. That have done some of these really cool projects uh, that kind of show someone like myself, who uh, you know, I would describe as a single day ultra marathon, or at least to this point in time, where I've gotten relatively good, I guess, at destroying myself for a day and then not getting up the next day, <laughs> which is going to be something I need to kind of fine tune. Where uh, with a with a cross country project, I've got to run a substantial amount of distance and time, and then also be able to kind of get up and do it again the next day. And, and for someone like yourself, who I believe with your Sahara run, was like a was it 111 consecutive days? Yeah, it was 111 days and averaged about 40 miles a day. And then in
1: subsequent expeditions that I've done, let's say desert expeditions, um, they've progressively gotten more remote and more, if you will, off-road cross country. So when I cross the Namib desert or the Gobi desert or Uh, the Atacama Desert, which is literally the driest place on earth. Those I'm navigating completely cross-country, carrying my supplies with me, minimal resupply. So I might see my crew once every 20, 30, up to 50 kilometers. And then I try to put in as much as I can in a day, minimal camp, get up, do it again. And then, you know, head cross-country because it's the straightest lines. So if you're able to navigate through mountains and and do all that, that sort of comes from the Arctic stuff right you want to be as efficient as you can possibly be in the terrain that you are in because in the arctic you're dragging everything with you the entire way so if you're 25 days in the arctic um you don't want to waste time right but i think mm-hmm. what's different about that as compared to what you're going to do the physical aspect of what you're going to do obviously uh is tremendously challenging and pete could probably talk a lot better to this but you know in 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 you know, uh, talking with Marshall and, uh, you know, helping him out a little bit with his transcontinental, you know, you're on that linear surface over and over and over again. And there's, there's vast amounts during the day because you're going to be running so far every day where you are on that, you know, slight camber, it's almost unavoidable. Right. And so it's these things that are, that are very consistent in what you're going to do that actually make it so unbelievably challenging. And, Just knowing you, you're going to do tremendous mileage every day. So it's like, how do you recover from that, that mileage? And that's, that's, that's the critical piece in multi-day anything, even stage racing. When people go into a stage race for six days, marathon days out, it's all about being able to recover and get up and do it again. You know? Yeah,
0: yeah. No, I'm glad you mentioned that because I would say my two kind of big pillars that I'm focusing on right now and will certainly be kind of playing around with in the, the months leading in when I'm kind of physically preparing for what it'll be like to, to run a little bit slower than I normally would in a race, but also you know be out there for about as long is like sleep. I realize like unlike a single day ultra marathon, I can't afford to have like multiple bad nights of sleep and expect things to go well. The other one is nutrition it's like kind of figuring out, well, how many calories a day am I going to need? And like, what can I get away with on that side? And I think both of those are probably two things that are going to feed right into that recovery side of things. And, uh, you know, one thing I noticed when I was watching your Ted talk was, I think it was the Sahara project. It may have been a different one, but you, you actually, I I think you lost a substantial amount of weight, like from 160 some pounds down to 119 yeah, in the Sahara,
1: that's, that's exactly what happened. And, you know, in an expedition like that, you're sort of relying more on, and I would say that was the most supported project I've done, period. And so in that expedition, you're relying a lot on local foods and, and that sort of thing. The contrast is to where things have gone um, in the last few years, when I ran the length of the Namib Desert from South Africa to Angola, I adapted my body around those roughly 2000 kilometers that I knew what food was going to be available to me in those 2000 kilometers It was oppressively hot. So it's not like you can bring food out there with the crew. And that was a supported expedition, but minimally supported the foods perishable, right? So it's like, I knew what I was going to be eating contrast that with an Arctic expedition where I'm taking everything with me. I dial my nutrition around what I feel is going to be my, um, you know my best available that I'm able to actually bring with me. So on arctic expeditions I rely 90% fat or is my calories are about 90% from fat. Um I use a ton of coconut oil in my foods on the arctic expeditions. They you are know, obviously getting more calories per gram everything else and The effort, the effort is different, you know, because the sled weighs 150 pounds or whatever it weighs. I weigh 150 pounds. So there's not much difference between me and the sled. It's a tug of war. So it's about efficiency. And the more efficient we are during the day in the foods that we're eating and and when we're, you know, putting the effort in, then the better we're going to be able to recover after if that makes sense. I know I've gone off on a little bit of a tangent here, but it sort of, you know, it gives you an idea where my head is at on how I'm preparing to do the things that I'm doing. And the same thing was with Marshall. We had him to a point where, you know, he could consume a ton of food before and, and run while eating a ton of food. And I think he only lost, Oh God, if I'm not mistaken six or seven pounds on his transcontinental on my Arctic expeditions. Now I go in at my, peak, like my best weight, 150, 152. And I maintain, I lose very little, even though I'm in a calorie deficit every single day because I've become much more efficient.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. I think, uh, you know, my audience, at least part of it is uh, into my diet, which is low carbohydrates. So I think when they heard you say 90% fat, their ears will perk up a little bit. So when we're talking 90% of your calories coming from fat, you're you're definitely what I would call a strict ketogenic diet. There's really no no way around that at that at that number. Is that something that is by design from a you want to have fat as your primary macronutrient for fuel? Or is it more to do just with the fact that, you know, fat has nine kilocals per gram versus four that you're going to get from carbohydrates. So from a self certainly from the self supported stuff, it just makes more sense from a packing and a planning standpoint to lean on those more calorie dense foods, even if it comes at the exchange of some oxygen efficiency.
1: Yes, I would agree with that completely. So on the Arctic stuff, for sure. And I'm taking more, you know, I'm taking more vegan style fats with me when I'm on the Arctic expeditions, because typically if I'm in the Arctic in winter, it's dark and polar bears are an issue. Mm. And dude, I'm terrified of polar bears. Like, I mean, they're just these things are huge. They're like minivans with teeth.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it's like
1: crazy. these things are huge. So I try to attract them as least as I can, you know, give them less, uh, you know, to, to smell when I'm, when I'm preparing my food in, in the tent. So I, I really, I do dial it like, you know, when I, I mentioned Namibia and I didn't really finish on that, I knew that I was going to have rice beans. We were going to bring containers of olive oil and coconut oil, but there was a higher carbohydrate component in my diet, uh, on that expedition, because that's all we could really bring with us really. Uh, right. So, but that being said, I feel better when I'm eating a Mediterranean style diet that is lower in carbohydrate, higher in fat as a percentage of calories, it just works better for me on a day to day basis. I'm 52. So everything I do now is about dialing it so that I can feel good to get up the next day and train hard. Still. Like I did when I was 42, you know, Mm -hmm. and I just find, I feel better. I just feel better when I'm eating that way. And so I'm performing better and yeah.
0: Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's just really interesting. I think like, The one, the, one of the reasons I like to talk to folks like yourself or any real athlete, I guess, who has spent a significant amount of time, just really kind of fine tuning an approach, a physical approach at anything is we just kind of get really in tune with what our body feels like when we're doing certain things. And you get to a point where you can really recognize very small deviations from, I feel great versus, you know, I feel slightly off and that sort of stuff. So when you kind of have some consistency in training or in your life, and then you make a switch, whether it be dietary or something else, some of these things I think pop up a little bit. And I think the diet is the interesting one where, you know, you get some folks who seem to just thrive on certain ways of eating and others on the almost a complete opposite. And it's really like, to me, the way I say is like, you know, the proof is in the performance or the outcome at the end of the day. So like I, I take a lot of stock, I guess, in, in, anecdotes albeit but uh, when we're talking about adventures like you're doing and some of these really like probably more or less unstudied physical efforts it's kind of what we have I I agree with you and I think it's it's,
1: nutrition too is very much a personal thing you know if you feel good or not and you got to roll with what makes you feel good right like Mm -hmm. I didn't start any outdoor activity or sports or any of this stuff till I was 30 so I basically started from zero. Like I was a smoker, heavy drinker, all that stuff before I got into the outdoors and started climbing with my brother around 2000, 2001. And the more I got into, I was previously a mountain biker before I became an ultra runner. And in that time of mountain biking, biking, it was everything I could do to feel better to climb on my mountain bike. And so it was like, what what I realized is that you can train as much as you want, but if you're not putting good fuel into your body, you, know, you are what you eat, as they say, right? So the more I was not paying attention to that, the less gains I was making. And I became like voracious about wanting to learn about my body and how I can make it perform better. Now, fast forward, you know, as I said, into early fifties and all I'm thinking about is, okay, I want to try and maintain feeling good now and still have some big projects I still want to do. Um, And so what can I do to make my training better? And I tweak these things and I feel the tweaks. I know when, you know, when it's really working for me and when something is not working for me and depending on the environment I'm in as well, you know, I I think that's critical. Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's probably a controversial thing to say, but I can say it anyhow. I think the big issue that a lot of people have, and I was talking to a buddy of mine, ultra runner from Utah earlier today about this, just an amazing guy is that we can follow all of these strict protocols in nutrition or whatever, because we're passionate about it. And we want to eat the right way for us that works for us. But then you go to your event or your race or whatever, and you're filling your body full of sugar and stuff, right? Like tons of it. And it's not like you're in a stressful situation because you are exercising an incredible rate of exertion, which is stress, increased cortisol levels. It's like sitting at home and being stressed in the office and then going for a box of Krispy Kreme donuts. I mean, it's, it's, you're sort of doing the same thing, right? High stress feeding sugar, high stress feeding sugar. So it's about balance, right? And it's about getting people to recognize the whole picture and see the whole picture that race nutrition or event nutrition and your home nutrition are actually quite tied together and they take time to figure out
0: hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Because I think like when I just reflect on some of the single day ultra marathons I've done, it's, there's the huge stress component, obviously, just the anxiety and stress that you get from being at an event and competing, and then also just the physical uh, and digestive toll your body takes for doing that. So then the next day, I mean, you're physically sore, obviously, but then you're also kind of, you know, I think the alternate community, like describes it like the ultra fog, or kind of you have like, a almost like this, like post event. Um, lack of clarity, more or less, which is something I'm kind of interested in because it sounds like maybe what you're saying is like you manage stress in a way for these things where it doesn't overflow so much on any one day to the point where it's negatively impacting the next day to the point in which you have to you know give up on your project or concede like a distant goal or something like that for for the day.
1: Oh, I, there's been many times. I mean, you know, it could be a sandstorm. It could be an injury, it could be uh, breaking through rivers in the Arctic, there's any number of reasons that I'll lose distance on a day beyond even nutrition. So when I go into my expeditions, my primary goal, because many of these places have not been really explored before, or not to any extent. So my goal is always get from point A to point B. I mean, you know, and whatever happens in the middle, these are my goals. But whatever happens in the middle, if I can get to point B, I'll be stoked, right? And so I'm willing to roll with that. But, you know, have, have there been, I've, I've, I've been crumpled up in a ball dehydrated on in, in the desert before with my entire body cramping, not knowing if I'm going to be able to run the next day. But it's it, it, in, in theory, or like in process, most times, when I've got it dialed, and when I've got it nailed, and if I'm doing the things I need to do, that's not a thing that I need to necessarily worry about. It's all the other stuff you know what I mean? All the other hazards, environmental or anything else that could possibly go wrong on an expedition that that would that would prevent me from getting another good day in or having a, a complete drop back in my mileage.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, that is something I've also been thinking about as I just look at the logistical stuff around a project like this. And the one thing I'm kind of just bouncing around in my head right now is there's obviously things that you need to have pretty dialed in or taken care of that you don't want to have to have go wrong, or you don't want to have to, you know, have to plan for or change your, your trajectory about during the event itself. But once you start looking at the list of variables that are going to potentially pop up, it's endless. So it seems like there's like a balance there where I need to have some of these foundational things taken care of. Uh, but there's going to be things that I have to just be comfortable knowing I'm not going to be able to do anything about them and they're going to pop up and I'm going to have to kind of problem solve on the fly. And really the, probably in my opinion, the difference between having a successful project and maybe an unsuccessful one is how well you manage those uncertain variables that you're not necessarily beating yourself up, trying to comb over before the project, but you know, they're going to come when they, when you start it.
1: Yeah. I'd agree with that completely. I think that, uh, you know, I sort of made this, this funny statement after running the Sahara, I said, it's 90% mental other 10% is all in your head. Like, I mean, the whole thing's a mental game. Like you have the physical ability to do this. There's that's done. We, everybody knows that. And it's what are you going to deal with or how are you going to deal with it mentally when there are bad days? Cause the reality is you can make up those days. Like if you have a really bad day, You can always make it up and you can bank mileage, you can change your strategy, but it's being willing to move laterally and commit to whatever you need to do to finish it. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's, if if you can, if you can, you know, be malleable as it's happening and accept that things are going to change as you make your, as you're going to make your way, it's not going to go exactly according to plan perhaps. And you get your head around that you'll still achieve the goal. Right. But like, again, you start here, you finish here, whatever happens in the middle happens, right. Mm-hmm. It's just about getting from here to here in this amount of time.
0: Right. Yeah. And that's part of the excitement, I suppose, is that uncertainty in the middle. And uh, yeah, that's actually, it reminded me of a question. I, you know, you've been in the sport longer than me and you probably have a good perspective of this. You've seen it probably go from a little tiny sport. I mean, it's still relatively small. When we look at kind of the big sports in the world, but it's definitely grown a lot since, since I ran my first ultra marathon in 2010. And one thing I find interesting, especially when, when someone like yourself mentions like the mental side of it, how big of a piece of the pie that actually is, is like this, this idea where I, I get a sense sometimes I wouldn't say it's pervasive, but it does kind of pop up every once in a while in, in kind of the ultra extreme endurance community is this, there seems to be a resistance to wanting to be able to say like, Yeah. Today went badly because I just wasn't mentally there. It's a lot easier. It seems for us as extreme endurance athletes to say, well, physically, I didn't have what it took and such and such broke down or this happened. And then that led to that. So then I wasn't able to do it. It, So it's, it's almost like there's a, people are maybe, I guess, maybe coping a little bit with like how much, we can fail mentally and have that be the real reason why races don't go well. And it's just easier to turn to some sort of physical thing, which is going to be there. I mean, there's no way around it. Like you go out and I could run a hundred miles slow as I've ever run it or as fast as I've ever had. And there's going to be physical things that bother me during either of those polar ends. But at the end of the day, you know, getting it done is kind of like pretty much mental for the most part my mind is like, you know, getting attacked by that polar bear, I guess.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Right. You will, you, you accept when you're going to do something like in your case, run, you know, hundred miles in under 12 hours. Like, I mean, I just, I still, I can't, I can't, it doesn't compute those numbers don't compute, but you accept that when you're going to do that, it's not going to feel like you're running in a field of daisies the whole time. I mean, there's going to be some really, really rough patches. And so, you know, that you accept it as part of what you do in the thing that you do. So once you get past that, you know, it's, it's everything else is extraneous information. You know, it's like, it's like uh, you wake up on day 20. Uh, well, maybe you're already be in, in New York City by day. 20, right? <laughs> so you wake up on day 17. And, and you say to yourself, you know, man, I just my ankle is killing me, whatever, right. And the question is not, I don't know if I can run because my ankle's so sore. The question is, are you going to get up and run, mm-hmm. right? Everything else is extraneous information. If you say, no, I'm not going to get up and run. Okay, now why are you not getting up and running? You dig what I'm saying? It's like It, it boils down, it's, it's refined down to very straightforward decisions. You're either moving or you're not moving. And I think that um, it, it, acceptance of a mental... Uh, you know, uh, uh, like a block or whatever we call it, or like, a you know, something that has come up and it and it truly is uh, in our heads. I mean, it's something that's real and it's happening It's very relative to individuals. It's very relative to each one of us and how we experience things and how we internalize things, but it's also being willing to accept that that's what it is and, and you just move on from it. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The, it's, it's interesting. Cause I think just the, uh... The the event planning and all that stuff is is just such a bigger time frame too, and you you know you're you're leaning on other people the whole time and things like that. So I'm you know, one of the reasons that I eventually got around to saying, hey, I want to actually start planning this project and kind of starting to put the pieces in place. Was I identified something that was uh, I guess bigger than me, so to speak? And if I'm honest with myself, it's probably part of the reason why I feel confident that I can do this. If it was just like me going out there and deciding, okay, I'm going to run from San Francisco to New York, there's going to be a point at which, you know, I have to face myself and say, do you really want to be doing this? And if I say no, then I'm really only letting myself down at the end of the day. Whereas, you know, I'm doing it for a charity called fight for the forgotten. And if, if I find myself two thirds of the way across the country and I'm thinking about pulling the plug, you know, there's a lot of other stakeholders at, at hand there and i think that's you know partly daunting but also partly motivating in the sense that it puts me in a position where you know i think i have a little more incentive to stay true to what is possible even when in my mind i feel like this isn't going to be able to happen if that makes sense and i know I know I'll stop rambling in a second here, but I, yeah, I know honestly, you've we, done some stuff it. for for charity stuff too and things like that. So you may have some perspective on that. And I, I'd just be curious because with the number of projects you've done, I'm, I'm sure some of them were more just for yourself and others were for other charities. And is there a differentiation there? Or? Yeah, that is like, yeah, that is such a
1: great question. And I, and I agree with everything that you said there, uh, you know, I, when I'm picking the expeditions that I'm going to train and spend and dedicate an entire year of training to and and logistics and planning and, and, and all this there are places that I really want to go, you know, like there are remote, remote parts of the Canadian Arctic that I've been in in winter that are super hard to get to and just cross it, just getting to them is hard enough, let alone crossing these places. But like you, I think, Having something else attached to it that makes it more of a meaningful experience has always been the primary driver for me. and and I started uh, with with my buddy Bob Cox from California. We started a um, a charity thirteen years ago called Impossible to Possible. And what we do essentially is take young people, on expeditions all over the world, Sandy Nypaver, an ultra runner that a lot yeah. of people know, or a Ryan Montgomery, another ultra runner. They, they were youth ambassadors on our expeditions in their earlier days. So we take these young people on these expeditions all over the world, and they're 100% free of charge. We go to super remote places like the Amazon jungle or Rajasthan, and we attach a learning component to the expedition and they become teachers with a group of educators that are on the expedition to facilitate a discussion about this specific subject across satellite with schools all over the world. So we've been doing these expeditions, Jeez, I think we've done 14 of these things. But as an extension to that, every one of my expeditions is in support of Impossible to Possible to keep everything we do free. And by the way, we're all volunteers in it. And also it's, it's a platform whereby which schools can learn about the places that I'm in. So sorry about the long answer, but an example would be when I ran across the Mongolian desert in in, uh, the Gobi desert in Mongolia, it was a little over uh, 2,300 or so kilometers. And as I made my way across that desert, it was in summer. And summertime in Mongolia is the time of Nadam, which is a cultural festival that, where heroes are made out of like archers and horse racers and wrestlers. And so we use the expedition as a thread to tell the stories through a series of like mini docs that followed the expeditions of schools could ask questions of me at camp. What did I see today? And then meanwhile, a film crews going out, they're not obviously with me out in the middle of the desert, but they're capturing these stories in like an incredibly um, very beautiful textured culture and very remote culture. So it brings classrooms onto expeditions, expeditions in the classrooms. That's why I love doing what I do. And I get to connect students and schools with these places that I'm in. And so it makes it purposeful for me. And I got to get around that next mountain or across that next sand dune uh, and show them what's next. So it's a driver for me.
0: Yeah, no, that sounds incredibly inspiring. I'm sure the, you know, I used to teach, I I taught both middle school and high school for about five years before kind of changing directions a bit to focus on kind of running and things like that. But, uh, you know, projects like that are always interesting to me. Cause like, I think of just, uh, I don't, I hate to say it, but how bland the general curriculum can be sometimes. And, uh, but there's so much potential there too. Cause like, well, what you're doing is literally a cross curriculum of a variety of different things from like health nutrition to, I mean, there's math in there, there's public speaking in there, there's writing in there, there's all sorts of stuff. And if you can use something like that to like inspire the kids to want to be able to kind of use those tools that they're using that sometimes come across as maybe a little more like bland towards something that's exciting. Like, you know, following you go through, going through some of these remote places has to be a rewarding way to kind of give back. Oh yeah, totally. It totally is. And, and the fact that we we
1: have this philosophy that awesome um, education and content should be free for schools so everything we do with them is totally free and we don't do it like we do great content. Like we'll have, we've had award-winning filmmakers, Emmy award-winning filmmakers and national geographic photographers go on expeditions either with me or with the youth expeditions on those separate projects with impossible to possible to create the content that tells the story of the place. So it's, it's, it's a really great and, and immersive content that students actually feel that they're there. So just because it's free, doesn't mean it's gotta be crappy. You know, that it can be really good. And as you said, it's always different subjects and schools can digest that content in any way they want to. Like if I'm running across the Atacama Desert, it's the driest place on earth. It's 800 miles long. I'm running through the mountains and I'm shooting little bits of video of of what I'm learning about this place. And they're taking each one of those 20 days or whatever it took me to run across that desert. And they're using it as a learning module on uh, environmental change. Um, you know, the, because the ozone layer is depleted there heat factors of weather, like heat, they're looking at, um, li- the, uh, biodiversity of the region, all these sorts of things. So it's, it's exciting, you know,
0: mm-hmm. this episode of the human performance outliers podcast is brought to you by Bioptimizers Breakthrough Magnesium. Magnesium is responsible for powering over 300 critical reactions, including detoxification, fat metabolism, energy, even digestion is influenced by the presence of magnesium. It has been estimated that up to 80% of the population may be deficient in magnesium. Often people don't recognize that there are at least seven types of magnesium. Most magnesium supplements contain one or two forms of these seven types. Bioptimizers has formulated their magnesium supplement to contain all seven forms of magnesium. Breakthrough Magnesium has a select packages available for up to 40% off when combined with our custom 10% discount code, which will be activated by entering the coupon code HUMAN10 when you head over to www.magbreakthrough.com forward slash HUMAN. All links and codes will be included in the show notes. Now, on to the next topic. Yeah, no, that that it's 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 just interesting to kind of hear how many moving parts you have going into some of this stuff cuz I think sometimes it can be probably easier to think like okay, I just need to focus on getting this project done versus how do I tether in some of these other things and it sounds like you've more or less found a way to, to make that work one way or the other. Uh, even with the relative remote side of things, was was that difficult from just like a an access point having all that stuff, or was that kind of offloaded onto someone with, uh, I guess, really good equipment, more or less? Yeah. So it's it's been it depends on the expedition.
1: Um, when I'm on the Arctic stuff or Siberia, those kind of expeditions, South Pole, um, we bring everything with us. So I have a satellite receiver. I have all the equipment. And yeah, like, you know, in these sleds, I'm hauling more stuff to be able to achieve the mission, but it's worth it to me. Right. Like I'm like, I'm all in when I'm in the desert expeditions, although like it's a small crew and it's like we go lean and light to it's, it's reduce cost and everything else. Um, we still bring the same satellite gear. It's just that I'm not carrying it on my back, right? Mm-hmm. And um, there is obviously no cell phone reception in any of these places that I go. So you've got to rely on that technology. And, and there are people that we've worked with over the years that I've learned from. I never stop learning. And so I've learned from people over time how best to make these different technologies with impossible to possible. You know, virtual learning right now during the pandemic has been a huge thing. Both my daughters were out of school again recently and uh, learning from computer while we were doing uh, virtual live streaming from expeditions in 2009, 2010 on the youth expeditions, like by satellite. So it's something that we've always been pretty comfortable with. I remember going to the South Pole and being on Antarctica and doing uh, live conference calls and telecasts, all this jazz from, and, and website updates from our tents on Antarctica. I mean, you can't really get any further from, from home. And, and so, you know, we can do amazing things with technology now.
0: Yeah. And it, it's, uh, it sounds like not too far down the road, it might be even easier with some of the, like the hyperlink satellite stuff that <laughs> you'll, you probably would have wished that would have came a, a couple decades earlier. <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly. Make everything a little easier.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The, you know, the other interesting thing is just like, obviously there's the equipment and that sort of stuff, food, Uh, water is one that always interests me when you do these, these self-supported things, like how are you managing that or are you doing the hot weather ones unsupported? And if you are, what, what is the way that you're able to get water, enough water to be able to kind of continue on? So I'll use the Atacama
1: or, uh, a couple of different examples. So Atacama and Namibia, which were both very, very hot. So like 50 degrees Celsius. So I don't know what that is. Death Valley hot, basically. Mm Um, on those expeditions, I was relying on resupplies. So I would get a resupply on average, let's call it every 20 to 30 kilometers. So like 10 to 20 miles, I would get a resupply. After, you know, two years of planning of a route, we figured these key points along my entire route where a four wheel drive could eventually get to me because they got to do this while I'm going straight lines. So they could they could have the water in those areas. In Namibia, there was vast... Uh, regions that we would go unsupported and filter water and, um, and use that water while we were on route. And then of course, rely on resupplies. In Death Valley, I did a North South complete off-road crossing. We did the first one in summer 2011 and we relied on uh, caches on that one as well when I did West to East across Death Valley. So we had caches in place with permission from the national park service of where we were allowed to have them. We would navigate to those caches then clear the caches after so that we would have water. So that all depends, right, like on the, on the structure. But in the Arctic expeditions, um, the water's all around you. It's just finding enough of it. So it, contrary to one's belief, and you could find this if you, if you go on my Instagram page or my website or my Facebook page, you'll see images of me in the Arctic uh, on my last expedition in January 2020, and there doesn't seem to be that much snow around because there isn't. There isn't a lot of snow in the Arctic when it's minus 60, minus 65. You don't get a lot of precipitation. So um, instead, it's all wind blowing. So I should say, you know, you're minus 50, let's say 55. And then that wind is blowing up to minus 65. It's just, it's that strong. So there's there's no snow around. So you're looking for ice and things like that. But the, ice, the water's around you, so you don't got to bring it with you. Mm-hmm. But I don't drink that much, especially on the cold expeditions,
0: you know? Yeah, and I would imagine... I mean, I'm probably looking at this through the lens of uh, mass surplus <laughs> where like I can walk right next to next, to next room and get a glass of water. Anytime I even get remotely thirsty and, you know, my body's going to process accordingly. Whereas I think you're probably out there. I mean, you're certainly out there long enough where your body starts to get maybe a little more efficient, even with something like that, where you're maybe just not recycling water quite well. You're probably constantly dehydrated to some degree, but like, it's just, there's this big maybe crossover from optimal to survival. And you're kind of probably skewing a little more towards survival than optimal in those cases.
1: Yeah. So like in the, in the last Arctic one in uh, last January, 2020, I, uh, I was crossing some, some broken overflow, some dry overflow that was all broken ice. And, and it was probably, I was on a river and uh, my thermos was lashed to the top of my sled and that had tea in it. And that was going to be my hydration for the day. Because it's literally, that thermos was going to be frozen solid. It was so cold, it'd be frozen solid in about eight hours. So I had eight hours of, you know, this one liter of fluid to cover. I was trying to cover about 50K a day if, if, if I was able to. And so I was on this dry overflow. And I kept breaking through this ice. And it was about a yard deep down to where the river would be. It was dry river. It was a glacial river. And so it was just a thin layer of ice and boulders. So I kept breaking through and falling through these big holes. And at one point my sled would fall through and then I would fall through. I pull the sled back out and I get going and break through again. And at one point I realized somewhere way back, my thermos had come (laughs) on. So from that point forward for the rest of the expedition, I'm like, all right, what's I going to, I'm going to drink a ton when I get into the tent at night and I'll drink a ton in the morning before I leave. Right. So it just, you sort of have to adapt to the situation. And my body was like, all right, well, sort of been here before I kind of know what to do. And I've found that from all the hot weather expeditions that my sweet spot at home when I'm training is about 20 to 30 kilometers in trail running. And then I'm good. Like I, I just, I feel okay. You know, I don't need to overhydrate.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really interesting. I think the other thing I thought of when you were talking about kind of like the caches that you have spread out at various distances That has to be something that you're very much focused on from the day to day. Because one thing I always think about, even with the single day ultra marathons is trying to wrap your head around the entirety of the event. The entire way is just going to be anxiety provoking and you're just going to mentally burn yourself out by doing so. So you have to really focus on little benchmarks. So my thought, or at least hope is that with these longer efforts, multi-day efforts, you're doing the same thing, but there may be just a little more macro in nature where, you know, I might be thinking about, okay, I need to get to the next uh, five mile aid station on a single day event. Whereas you might be thinking, all right, today's mission is to get to that next cache. I really have no choice, but to get there because it's got what I need to kind of keep going. Is that kind of how you're going about that from a mental standpoint? Yeah.
1: Yes. I would say that that's exactly like in, in the case of a desert expedition, when there's a cache, for sure. I'm, I'm looking forward to getting to that cache. If, I, if I'm on, you know, in one of the larger deserts where I know I'm going to see a crew in 20 or 30 miles, I'm focused on getting there because my survival depends on it. And in the Arctic or Siberia or any one of these things, it's more about just breaking it down five kilometers at a time, almost like what you're saying, you know, reaching a CP. I, I get to a point in my mind where I know what I need to do because I have limited food supplies in my sled. You know, I'll bring 20 days plus five emergency if something bad goes wrong. And um Kemchaka uh, is this chunk of land. I don't know if you're familiar with it, hangs off Eastern Siberia. Attempted to cross that in winter, February, 2019, unsupported with an Italian explorer. And we had 25 days of food. We assumed it would take us 20 days to cross. We got to the two thirds point which was a mountain range, a spine of mountains we had to cross. And because of crazy conditions of a, you know, global warming, changing the snow quality, everything else, it ended up taking us, we had ate 20 days of food in the first 15 because we're just burning through absolutely everything. So it's kind of like earlier in our conversation, we were saying, all right, well, listen, things are going to happen. This was a wrench that was thrown at us. And we just, we came to the realization that we were eventually going to run out of food on this expedition and, and we were going to have to figure that out. Right. And um, so our focus on that expedition go as far as we possibly could every day. And some days, a full effort, the entire day going back and forth with the sleds in, in meter and a half snow through these mountains, trying to get there, it would take, we cover nine kilometers in a day. Mm-hmm. It was ridiculous. Right. And so all you're thinking is get over 10 K, you know, mm-hmm. so the, the goals change. Right. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And I think that's probably something that, I mean, that would definitely be a mental hurdle for me to get over would be if you go in with this anticipation of I'm going to average this amount. And when you start recognizing that that's just not going to happen, you have to almost redefine what a kilometer actually is in your mind. And before you can really start to accept that that's your reality.
1: Yeah. And you know, the other thing too, kilometers, I find they're, they feel much faster than miles. Cause they go by yeah. so much quicker. Right. But you know, is you'd, be able, <laughs> you'd be moving across so quick. You wouldn't even be able to click the kilometers. of Oh, well, that's why those gone. But uh, I, I, I think, you know, in, in what you're doing, it's such an Epic run and, but you have time and depending on what your time goal is and you know, in your head, what exactly it is that you, that dream goal is and what it is that you want to do. If you're thinking about, Banking time on the good days, depending on if it's two downhill days or whatever, coming across the Rockies, however it's going to work, right? You know, it's like putting in the mileage, putting money in the bank when you can. And I'm sure Pete probably did this on his epic uh, north to south, right, on on the road. Mm-hmm. And it's it's putting in the time when you can get it in and, you know, it's being able to make a withdrawal later if you need to on that mm-hmm. mileage. And it alleviates stress a little bit. So it's it's a game of math. But it's also, it also feeds the mental aspect of what you do when you're ahead of the the game. But I mean, to have a strict average every single day, like, you know, a number, that's, that can be daunting as well,
0: you know? Yeah, that's, you you bring up a great topic that I want to bounce off you. Because one way I've kind of been toying around with navigating that particular situation is rather than say, I'm going to try to hit X number of miles or kilometers per day, I'm thinking like, I'm going to target like a 12 to 14 hour window per day where I get this window of time to move forward. And if that happens to be a day where I feel good, have a little more downhill running, and I exceed my eventual average by a good margin, great. But if it's a day where, you know, maybe I'm heading up the mountain, not having a great day, and I'm, you know, I'm going a lot slower and things just aren't moving quite as well. I'm sticking with that time window as kind of my guide or my metric. And my thought with that is that, that's going to kind of give me both the opportunity to consistently have the opportunity to sleep at night. If I, you know, in order to kind of hit that reset button without trying to push the needle too far. And uh, I guess my question is what are your thoughts about that strategy? And then is there a point where I can abandon it when I get close enough to New York where I can just say, okay, now, now I can start running sleep deprivation.
1: (laughs) Yeah. You know, and I think that that is like, totally bang on everything you said. And even the last part there, which was what I was going to mention, your body will adapt and go through changes physically, mentally, emotionally that we can't even, or you can't even perceive right now because you've never ran that far every single day in in, in your life. Right? So by the time you get to two thirds, let's say, or three quarters of the way you're going to, from a runner's perspective, be a completely different person right? And then you're going to see a different part of you that you're introduced to for the very first time. Well, hello, it's good to meet you. And then you're just (laughs) going to take off, right? And so you'll know what you're physically able to do. But I suspect um, that you will be able to do amazing things that wouldn't seem physically possible, or mentally or emotionally possible in those last days. If that means two hours of sleep a night, I have a feeling that you're going to be able to do that two hours of sleep per night if you need to. Uh, You look at some of the the pioneers and the people that have gone before and have done these things, like, you know, Marshall is a a perfect example of that. You know, he's told me stories of multiple days on four-hour nights, four hours of sleep a night. When I'm at home, actually, going, you know, bringing it back to, to some of the things I've experienced personally in my life, when I'm at home, I need to get seven hours a night. That's ideal for me. Seven or eight solid hours a night. I'm, I'm good to go. I got two young daughters that are involved in 50,000 different sports. They're Nordic skiing. We're driving them all over the place, you know, so I got to have time to do everything. (laughs) But when I'm on expedition, when I'm in the Arctic or any one of these, I can, if I have to go 20, 30, 40 days, four or five hours a night, if I need to, I can never do that when I'm at home (laughs) ever you know, but I can perform when I need to. So it's like, there's two versions of yourself that come to play. And so I think in those days as you, you're such a great athlete that by the time you get there, that athlete's going to evolve. And by the time you get to that, you know, the barn door is open and you're just going to be flying, you know, Mm -hmm. and all bets are off.
0: Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that because that that's maybe a little bit of a paradigm shift from how I've looked at this so far. And it, probably just because you're the first person to really kind of said it like that, where I would definitely describe myself as someone who, like you said, when I'm at home, you know, that seven, eight, nine, you know, hour window is kind of ideal. And if I find myself slipping out of it, I start noticing, all right, I'm not bouncing back as quick and a little more tired during the day, like a little more energy swings and things like that. So I do put a lot of premium in, in sleep in my general lifestyle and I had never really given it the amount of thought that like I'm just maybe I'm looking through this I'm looking through this project through the lens of my typical life when I should be open to it being like you said a whole different person at that point so that's equal parts reassuring and uh uh, curiosity inducing I guess
1: (laughs) yeah because it's gonna be amazing for you because you're gonna you you've you've achieved all these great things in in speed and ultra distance but it's going to be a combination now speed ultra distance multi-day so what happens to the body and the mind as you go through that process and i think um you've got the fuel you've got the training you've got everything else as you go through the process you're actually going to get stronger as you move along and your body's going to be like all right so listen He's burning 10,000 calories a day. He can only physically eat 7,000 calories a day, whatever the numbers are. Uh, we got to preserve what we got on board here because he's not giving up. He's just going to keep going. The body is amazing at adapting to stressful situations. Uh, we've seen that time and time again in history, right? And so I think when you apply it to what you're doing, it's it's, um, it's as physically hard as something you can do, but your body will respond to that because it has responded before in different circumstances so history kind of repeats
0: itself you know Mm -hmm. yeah that makes sense i think uh the other thing i find interesting about this sort of stuff kind of runs parallel i think with what makes ultra marathon intriguing for a lot of people too is that let's say like you're going to do a hundred mile race for the first time as you're kind of training through that i mean training is kind of equal parts physiologically adapting to the stressors you're going to take on and also You know, working on the mental strategy side of things and just getting yourself mentally ready to accept that, 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 that you can do what you're trying to do. And the big point of interest, I think with ultra marathoners is it's unlike the marathon and sub marathon distances where you can basically train up to the distance of the race. And then you have this little piece of comfort in the back of your mind. Like, I know I can go the distance. The question is how fast. Mm-hmm. Where you know no one's going to do a hundred mile training run in preparation for a hundred mile race, so you kind of have this little bit of uh, of uh, undiscovered terrain, I guess, or distance. Uh, even if you've done the distance before, I mean, it's probably relatively further back in terms of when you did it. So it's like it's kind of in the in the recess of your memory versus like this immediate exposure where I did my long run two weeks before the race, so it's very close proximity how do you kind of, I guess I just, I'm guessing here, but I'm guessing like the preparation for something like what you've done and what I'm going to try to do is similar to that, where there's really no training program that I could follow. That's going to expose me entirely to what I'm going to go through. So I have to kind of train myself physically and mentally as best I can, but know that I'm going to, in order to get to the starting line, I have to I'm going to have to concede that I won't be able to put together a six week training block where I'm hitting the number of time and distance that I will on the event itself. No, I think it's exactly right. I think from a running
1: perspective, you know, you, if you know, you can go the distance for two or three days in a row, let's say that's about the best you can do. But I think that training it's about, it's about reversing the philosophy of what the training is about and what the training goals and parameters are about. So in your case, in training to do something so long and and multi-day, it's not necessarily about training the running aspect. It's about training mobility, flexibility, strength, being able to take that wear and tear that's gonna happen on your body, but also it's environmental and it's from a food perspective. So going back to the very beginning of our conversation, it's your capacity to take those stressful elements of what you're gonna face every single day and reduce the level of stress. So if you can take off the table, we already know you're gonna run really far every day. Okay, that's a huge bulk of stress and that's gonna affect your capacity to recover. But if you can process a ton of food and the food that you need to process that works well for you day after day after day, if you can alleviate that component of digestion, that stressful aspect of it to your body, while digesting, grabbing macro micronutrients, While you're exercising so intensely, running so intensely over so many days, if you can remove that and make it easier on your body, well, then the running is going to be, I'm not going to say easier, but the running is going to flow a little bit better and you're going to get that sleep at night. So the training is about other things. It's about, you know, working on those mental aspects, working on uh, the food, the processing, the environmental. You're going to go through parts that are very hot you know, sauna training, you know, hydration and sauna training and knowing, you know, what are your sodium levels? What do you need to do about those sodium levels? You know, uh, if your body implodes, um, you know, I've crewed so many people in bad water uh, and I've seen them hit massive deficits, uh, you know, hypnotremia, there's m- multiple different things. How can you correct it? You got to be able to correct those situations and know how your body will respond to those corrections, like being hyperhydrated, It can happen. Well, you know, maybe I'm not supposed to say this publicly, but I've, I've crewed people through it and given them shots of espresso to get their body processing again, right. Having a bit of a diuretic in their system. So it's knowing what you need to do for your body and training all those other aspects that get forgotten that I think will be the successful component of the run. Cause the runs you can run. We mm-hmm. already know you can run. You can run really far, really fast. It's about all those other pieces, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. That I think are the most critical things.
0: Internet. Yeah, I think it, we're definitely on the same page there. I think I'm looking at it from the physical side of things. For the most part, I'm looking at it as, you know, I've been, you know, running almost my entire life and doing ultra marathons for over a decade now. So like a lot of that just cumulative volume over years will certainly be useful from the physical side of things. Oh. And and then it's like you said, getting the, the process down so you know what you're doing. And, and that's kind of one, that's one thing I think I'm going to do, uh, in the last couple months before is do like a three-day simulation where I say, okay, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, whatever it ends up being, I'm going to be running and walking for 12 to 14 hours and tracking kind of meticulously, like what type of fluid loss am I acquiring? Like, where's my, like, am I losing weight even in that three-day range and knowing like, okay, if I eat this way, that's what I can expect to lose, at least in the early stages and just kind of dial in some of those metrics a little closer to be specific to what I'm, going to be doing, which is the kind of the new part for me, right? The part that I have to have to learn. <laughs> Absolutely.
1: It's, it, it's brilliant. Exactly. What you're saying is exactly bang on. It's knowing, you know what, if I have to, I can eat this, uh, you know, whatever it is, uh, while I'm walking or I can even eat it while I'm running. Cause the fact of the matter is you're going to be eating most of your food while you're on the go. Cause there's mm-hmm. no way you're going to eat enough at night and in the morning to make you last the entire day. Right. So you're going to have to eat tons of calories during the day while you're on the go and you need your body to be used to processing those calories, not just sitting in there and not doing anything for you Mm -hmm. or bypassing and losing because you're in such a stressed, your body is a stressed, you know, environment because you're running and it's creating so much stress that you don't get everything out of the foods that you're taking in, you know, and it's Mm -hmm. figuring out like, yeah, like, I mean, there's a million strategies around nutrition that'll, that are, are going to, and you're an expert in that area with your own body, especially. And so you're going to know uh, what things and foods work best for you and in what quantities. And I have a feeling that you're the kind of person that can say, all right, look, at if I have to eat that husk of barley for the next 20 days, I can do that. You know, just coat it in the, and you'll, I'll dip it in olive oil and I'll eat only yeah. that one thing. You can eat that one thing. So you'll find what performance foods work best as well. Multi-day, you know? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. No, that, that's that's very helpful. Uh, you, the other thing I was curious about your input, because you've had multiple opportunities to explore this, is what's the aftermath in the sense that uh, I can imagine there's going to be kind of this weird psychological process, at least for a few days after finishing, where like you wake up in the morning and all of a sudden it's like, oh, I don't have to go out and move all day long. So what's that like? And then kind of the next phase that what's like the physical, from your opinion, or at least for you specifically, what's like the physical recovery from something like this in terms of how much time you have to kind of just remove yourself from running in general before you start even kind of getting excited, both physically and mentally to to start running again or start training again and focusing on another project?
1: Yeah, that's a great question too. I, you know, I, I did, when I was mountain bike racing, I was very fortunate to make a friend who was a sports psychologist and she taught me this theory of, I think it was called the theory of resonance, where you're visualizing yourself in the event that you're doing every single day. So a year before I go on expedition, I picture what the ground is going to feel like, what the air is going to smell like, what that you know cold is going to feel like on my face. So that by the time I get to the expedition, I feel like I've already been there. Like it's just where my head goes and I do the expedition and then I come home and there is no emotional lag. I'm not like missing that. I'm not doing it. I'm like all in on being home. As a matter of mm-hmm. fact, sitting on the couch is something that I don't mind doing. So <laughs> I'll have no problem doing that. Right. Like I think there's this genetic part of me that's a, that loves to just, you know, be lazy sometimes. So you know, from that mental emotional perspective, I've never, uh, knock on wood, I've never felt depressed after completing an event that, it, you know, and I understand it's a very real thing that, that people go through. I have a lot of friends that do, but for me, that has not been something. I'm just, I'm stoked to be home back doing adventures with my kids and, and, and my wife and, and, and doing things, home things, domestic things. Right. But The physical aspect depends on the expedition that I'm on. When I came back from running the Sahara, I didn't run for about a month. I couldn't run. My body was weakened from that expedition, and I had a lot of injuries. So it took about a month before I could start running again. And then it just sort of came back, and then I felt great. And I ended up doing a project. So we finished in February 2007. And then in September, end of August 2007, I ran roughly 400 kilometers around the three coastal trails of Canada, including the travel and all that over the course of about a week. So I was prepared for that, you know, just months later. So the body does bounce back. But when I come back from the Arctic stuff, like this last Arctic trip I did, there's other things at play where, you know, frostbite is a huge thing that that happens. I've had all my fingers, you know, go black. I've had my toes lost feeling in my toes for, for six months, Uh, My last expedition, the winds were so strong, it was blowing through the holes in my goggles and my Mm -hmm. eyelids were frostbitten and all swollen up. So there's these other things that stop me and prevent me after an expedition from getting back to the day-to-day. But I have a feeling you will leave your your, uh, adventure and you are going to be able to, if you choose to do it, after a little bit of time off and some recovery, a little bit of time meaning it sounds ridiculous, but could be as little as weeks. Mm. And you're going to, if you feel like running, which don't ask me why you'd want to run after doing something like that for a week, <laughs> but Hey, teach his own, that you could probably get back on the horse and, and go because you're going to be, it's not like <clears throat> you're going out there and you're not going to do the hydration and the nutrition and the recovery. You're going to be, this is science, this run, you're going to be like Uber science on this thing and dialing it. By the time you get there, because you don't want to be a bag of shite by the end of the thing, you want to be in pretty good shape so you can really push it at the end. So that leads me to believe, yes, you're going to be unbelievably exhausted, but you're going to be still in pretty good shape because you've taken care of yourself across the U.S., Mm -hmm. right? So I think that it's going to be, everybody for everybody, it's different.
0: Hey folks, I want to make a quick shout out to some of my personal athlete sponsors and offer all of you some discount options. If you think my gear is also right for you, my shoe of choice, ultra footwear is offering listeners 15% off. They make a foot shaped balanced cushioned shoe that fits like a glove. S fuels is offering 5% off and they are my go to low carb workout and lifestyle product of choice. EggWeights is offering 15% off their running form strength work and recovery products finally purpose performance wear is offering 10% off my favorite workout apparel including my own signature series so head over to zachbitter.com forward slash my gear or the profile link on my social media channels to check out these discounts and more all right folks now back to the show Sure. No, I can imagine. And, and you mentioned something that is just, uh, that I tuned into because it's kind of a principle of mine on post event is, uh, you, when you get back to running when you want to. And I think that's the one that's always interesting to me because it's like, I see this happen, I think in the sport from time to time where, whether you have a good race or a bad race, there's like this incentive to kind of either like if you had a bad race, punish yourself back into the sport, but I kind of got to get back to training. I didn't train well enough. And that's why I had a bad race, or I had a great race. I'm super excited. I want to jump back into this right away. And then you find yourself like a few weeks into your next training block. You're like, why didn't I give myself at least a couple of weeks to really bounce back from this? So I really like the way you describe that where, you know, you know, give yourself time, be flexible and recognize it's going to be an individual timeline for everyone. But when you do want to start running, you know, that's probably a good sign that that's time to maybe start playing around with some, some structure again. Um, yeah. It's interesting you say too, because, you know, the other
1: thing that, that I've shared with friends and, and and people that I've worked with over the years is that when you come back from something epic like that, it's a great opportunity to do that other thing that you've never wanted to take time for before, because you were afraid it was going to impact your running, which it could, I mean, cycling, for example, you know, it can, it can impact your running, but you know, you could take up mountain biking. And you know, technical mountain biking is like one of the best things you can do for coordination and speed for technical running. Cause when you're technical mountain biking, if you're given her, you're going downhill way faster, you know? And so your your mind-body connection and your your eyes and, and the way you process information down the trail is coming at you so much faster. So mountain biking actually helps you with that. Well, you know what? When you're done in the run, maybe you switch to mountain biking for a month and it keeps you fit. It's doing something completely different and it's developing different skills, right?
0: Mm-hmm. I was thinking more like bench press, but. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, that makes a ton of sense. And I think, like, uh, yeah, I think, you know, there's going to be like this desire to move eventually, even if, even after I've sat on the couch for a while. And I think that, yeah, opening up those doors of uh, different activities that, like you said, I really like how you said that, where, you know, there is a cost to taking something like that seriously where there is a certain amount of time in the day and you have to decide how you're going to invest that time. And, you know, for someone like you or myself, we're going to do a sizable amount of that into the running stuff. So what we leave on the table are some other activities, maybe like cycling or, you know, weightlifting or hiking, whatever it ends up being. And uh, if you look at that as an opportunity versus I've had this piece of my life removed, I think you're probably heading into a better mental space post post event. Totally, totally.
1: I mean, I used to ice, climb. my brother and I used to ice climb like crazy in the winters. And now it just, I'm either on expedition typically in the winters or, uh, you know, I'm training for the next expedition. And so it's like, it's just, it's a big process. Like the ice is not super close to where we live. So it's a whole process to go climbing. And it's just like, well, I got limited time. Right. You know, and between obviously doing stuff with my, with my kids as well. And, and, uh, and my own training, well, something's got to give. So I don't do that. Now, if I come back from a trip, maybe I'm going to go do some climbing, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. What, what, one thing I wanted to ask you along the, the post event recovery stuff still too, is you mentioned that you had some events where you were pretty dialed nutritionally only lost like a handful of pounds. And then you had your, your Sahara project where I mean you lost, I think it was like 40 pounds or something like that. Was there, I mean, I would imagine there had to been a bigger recovery process to the ones where you lose a substantial amount of weight, even if it's just kind of getting your body back to that kind of comfortable weight that you're used to being at. Yeah. So on the Sahara, when I lost 40 pounds, I went
1: into the expedition heavier than my normal weight. So normally, I think I mentioned before, but 150, 153 is kind of like normal for me. Uh, I went up to about 165 before I started the expedition. And I did that I've done 15 major expeditions over the years and i've done that for about half my expeditions go in heavy anticipating a caloric deficit and come out the other end i approach it completely differently now so i think a a big part of the net weight loss is not only the training has gotten better our nutrition and knowledge of nutrition has improved to a point where when you apply it to how you feel as an individual and the foods that are working for you as we talked about before i go in fit as fit as I can be now, I don't gain the extra weight. I don't try to put on the extra weight. I instead go in efficient, able to process the calories that I'm going to have, or I have access to, and instead come out the other end more or less, like, I mean, I'm losing a few pounds. I mean, yeah, it still happens. I mean, some of the Arctic stuff, but whatever, you know, I, I, it does take longer. The Sahara did take longer, but as I mentioned to you, I went off and did that other project. It was a hard one, like four months later. Mm -hmm. So four or five months later. So, you know, uh, Weight is not necessarily an indication of how hard the effort is, right? There's other, there's other elements that are indicators of how hard the effort is. I mean, the physical exhaustion being one of those, right? So I've come home more exhausted from other expeditions where I feel like I can't even lift my arm and have only lost five or six pounds. I think every single time is different and the factors are are different. What I do think is key is you come home and you don't start going to McDonald's every day. Do you know what I mean? Like you come back from these things and you've got to stick to the nutrition because it's the thing that's going to pull you back out again. So when you stop moving and keep eating well, maybe not as much, obviously, but keep eating well, you're providing your body with all those nutrients it needs to recover and heal itself much quicker. And I think it's a big mistake that many of us have made in the past is well, I just ran hundred miles. So I'm going to eat everything that's in front of me. And I mean, you, I guess you suppose you could, it probably mm-hmm. works for some people, but it's, it's not the best thing you could do, right? Mm-hmm. You are what you eat again, right? So it's like the more you can put India that's, that's healthy um, and, 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 you know, is going to help you to recover the foods that work for you, then the quicker you're going to bounce back and get back to the things you love doing. And, you know, and I know you know this from nutritional studies and all that stuff is that, how you're eating is uh, is affects you how you feel mentally. So the dread of not wanting to run again is associated to how you're feeding your body. Mm -hmm. Right. And are you actually recovering? You know what I'm saying? Like, so providing your body with everything it needs to recover nutritionally is also going to help you on the other end, getting back to running sooner mentally.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know that makes a ton of sense. Uh, yeah, this has all been super interesting. I have I have one other question I wanted to kind of pick your, your mind about. And just as you've done projects where there's solo missions, then you've done projects where you're with other people. And I was giving this some thought too, where I was thinking to myself, like there's, I can see advantages and disadvantages to both where obviously like misery likes company. So having some, someone, a friend with you would maybe be advantageous. But when things get rough or if you're having a bad day and they're having a good day or vice versa, what's the kind of the dynamic from a, just a your own psych, psyche during something when you're kind of on your own and you know, like, I get to decide how fast I go today, how far I move today to a degree uh, versus, you know, you have a group with you or at least one other person with you, in which case now you're worried about yourself. You're worried about your partners. They're also kind of in that same boat. And like, what's, what's the big, differences with those in your opinion
1: well you you cut you basically
0: you said it perfectly i mean when you're solo the buck stops with you
1: the good days you own them the bad days you own them it's yours right and there's a simplicity to that and a streamline to that that makes things um very easy to navigate personally right when you're with someone else um, or two other people. So typically an expedition for me, when, if I'm with someone else is either one other person or two other people, the dynamic of that relationship has to be so solid going in and honest because you are going to have bad days and they're going to have good days and they're going to have bad days and you're going to have good days. And it, really, that is, it, it, you know, the, the worst thing that can happen when you're in a group in the dynamic, the good day, bad day thing. I mean, everything else is, is accepted if you're going on an expedition with someone uh, like Stefano, this guy I'd done some projects with from Italy. He doesn't speak very much English, and I certainly don't speak Italian. I try, I try to add i and o to a lot of our words when we are talking out there, and it's amazing how many words I'll, that'll come up. Sometimes, anyhow, so Stefano and I'll do these things together. We don't speak but we know what the other person's thinking when you're hauling across the ice in a snowstorm, And we can, we have each other's back 100%. That's the benefit of the team. That is the super pro part of it is that you can lean on one another when you're both in a struggle, whether it's a storm or something else or something bad is happening. You can, you can hang on to one another, but at the other times, he's having a good day. You're having a bad day. It puts a stress on both of you. And that's probably the worst. That's the con. That's the worst part of that dynamic. So solo in some ways, I don't want to use the word simpler, but it, I can't think of a better word. You know, it's just more, this is the way it's going to be. I own it,
0: you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it makes sense. I think, uh, Man, I've, I've, uh, I knew I was going to come into this interview learning a ton from you, Ray, and I, I definitely did. And then probably some things that I had no clue I was going to learn. So this has been awesome. And I'm sure I'll be thinking of this conversation while I'm out there on the, on the cross-country journey later this year. So I thank you for that. But I also want to give you an opportunity to just share with the listeners, if you got any projects coming up, and then also like, where they can find you and kind of where, where your points of uh, emphasis are these days.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you for that. So I, I'm easy to find just my name, Ray Zahab. So R-A-Y-Z-A-H-A-B. And I have a website, it's just my name.com and I'm on uh, all the same social medias as you, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and I have the little blue check. So you'll know on Facebook, I use a public page and I do communicate with people every day on that Facebook page. They'll direct message me. So if you find that page, I'm there all the time and I'm on Instagram all the time as well. Um, our next projects I'm doing an I2P impossible to possible for short I2P youth expedition at the end of the summer. We're hoping post COVID in Canada, we're a little bit behind in the vaccinations compared to you guys down there, but we're hoping to get moving on that uh, this fall. I've got a major Arctic expedition next winter uh, that will take me across a remote region of the Arctic with one other guy, same guy that I crossed Siberia with um, many years ago. So I'm pretty excited about that and, um, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm guiding a ton with my business, Capic One, and uh, we guide expeditions for clients, and we sell coffee. So
0: it's this whole other
1: crazy thing that supports impossible to possible. But anyhow, that's what I'm doing these days.
0: Well, well, coffee sounds like something that would fit right in with what you're trying to do. Oh yeah, we're gonna <laughs> set you up. We're gonna set you up.
1: And are you a coffee drinker?
0: Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh dude, like
1: so you need to run across the United States, 12 bags of coffee, because it'd be 12 days. So I'll send you 12 bags of coffee. for. <laughs> we'll make You're, sure that you have all the coffee you could possibly
0: need. You have some wonderful expectations for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Awesome, Ray. Well, thank you so much for taking some time and, and sharing, sharing all this. I, I know I mentioned in the beginning, but these conversations are certainly helpful for me to kind of understand that you know, even though this is going to be something very new and foreign to what I've done in the past, there's there's precedent there. And there's guys like yourself that uh, have done things that are incredibly inspiring and and daunting. And that helps me understand, like, how to wrap my own head around this project specifically. So uh, I'm forever grateful for your time and, and previous and future efforts. Well, and I just
1: want to say thank you so much. And, and Zach, for a guy who has accomplished everything you have uh, just how humble you are and everything that you're achieving is, is pretty rad, dude. I mean, very accessible in our emails. I like, you know, not blowing smoke. I mean, it's, it's super legit that you're as accessible as you are. And, uh, that's gonna, I think, take you all the way across the U S that kind of energy.
0: So right on. <laughs> Thank you so much. Ray. Yeah, Take care. Okay. Thank you for listening to this episode of the human performance outliers podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please consider checking out my website at ZachBitter.com or my social media channels at ZachBitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter, and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. You can also support the show by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform. If you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to send me an email at HPOPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.